This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. It is good to be back live. And what rhymes with live? Beehive. <laughs> you you drop the ball, man. Usually you can rhyme just about anything in a coherent way. No, but see, like when you say like it's live and I'm down with the beehive, it's kind of like saying, yo, I'm here on the air, baby, and I'm ready to make it sweet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 man, it didn't work. It didn't we're, work. We're live in the beehive. <laughs> Which is what I call my house. I don't know. I could come up with something like that. Hey, man. Great to be no, back. Man, Last... the, the, hold on, man. Hold up. The, the beehive. The beehive. Hold up, brother. Because I'm starting to love this idea. First of all, the beehive. You can talk yourself into anything. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so first of all, the beehive is a dangerous place. You don't just walk up in a beehive. You know what I mean? Like, like you got you got to respect <laughs> the environment. You walk into the, to a beehive, you might get yourself hurt. You know what I mean? So, so the beehive is a dangerous place. But it's and where the, the honey is, too. It's where the honey is. You got to go there. It's like Aslan, man. You got to go there. But you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a price to pay. Oh, man. So, so we're going to call this this uh, simulated space that we occupy when we do these Fridays. This is the beehive right here. So we're live we're, we're, in the beehive. We're good, but we're not safe. That's right. A little bit yes, sticky. Sir. You might get stung. Um, <laughs> hey, so uh, last week we did not record one live. Instead, I played your chapter of Why Haven't You Read This Book? Um, Why Haven't You Auditioned for American Idol? The audiobook read by Mitchell Earl. And I, so I usually don't listen to my podcast. Like after I do an episode and post it, uh, or we do episodes. I usually never listen to them again, mostly because I don't want to because I'll hear them and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, I'm terrible. I have all these ums. I, I talk too much <laughs> and then I'll never want a podcast again. So I just don't. But that one, since it was your chapter, I went ahead and listened to it and I wanted to hear the full chapter. Uh, Mitchell doing the audiobook. I'd heard parts of it when he was in the process. Now, I've read your chapter a handful of, you know, several times while I was putting the book together and doing the editing. Um of course, your chapter only needed very light editing, uh, but, but um, just needed to break those mega paragraphs down into small. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Eliminate about 50 commas. <laughs> <laughs> no, but truly, dude, listening to it, and even though I know that story so well and I've read it, like I got choked up. I got choked up at the moment when Sylvia Culp tells you to go pursue your dreams. Like it was so good. It was so good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Kudos to you. Hey, so uh, today, I, audience questions, man. You ready? I'm ready, man. You, you have anything you want to say first before we jump right in? Well, you just mentioned Sylvia Cope, man. You know, I never got a chance to thank that lady because she died shortly after that experience. So it, it, it's kind of mm -hmm. like in those movies, man, where an angel intercedes and helps you out. And, and once you realize how much they've, they've been a part of your journey and you want to look up and say thank you, it's like they're gone. They disappeared into the mist. She was like an angel in that regard. So that's good so to funny because I didn't. You and I had maybe just met around this time, but you were you were a couple years ahead of me. But I was taking some philosophy classes at West at the same college, um, and I had her as a teacher. And halfway through the 
semester, the TA started teaching. Sylvia was was getting really sick or something like that. And I only found out years later. I didn't know that you ever knew her. And, and from your story, you didn't know her well. This was like kind of just a, an, a rare interaction you happen to have with her. Um, so I just thought that was really, that was really powerful. All right. Uh, let's jump into these questions. So I'm going to start. We have, um, five questions from that were submitted on isaacmorehouse.com. There's a little ask Isaac button. If you want to submit questions anytime, we'll go through those. And then both of us just posted to Facebook like two minutes ago, Hey, we're taking questions, post them. So after I'm done with these, we'll go look over there and we'll see, cause we both posted separately whose Facebook friends ask better questions and then we'll vote. And, um, I will determine, uh, based on my, uh, <laughs> who wins. based on whatever mood I happen to be in at the time. <laughs> That's how we do it in the beehive. All right. All right. So, uh, the first question from the website, um, and the questioner asks to remain anonymous and shares a, a pretty long and personal story just about, um, his background and, essentially his parents wanted him to go to college. They were planning on it, but they didn't really know much about it. They didn't, they, they didn't go to college themselves. They kind of saved up their money for it. Um, hit some financial hardships and he's always done really well in school. But now he says, I'm not prepared, or at least I don't think I am for college financially and otherwise. And I don't even know if college is something I want to do in my life in school, unless I'm in a subject I really enjoy I'm really reluctant to do anything. I just want to do what I love. I want to be a leader, an entrepreneur. I want to follow my passion and make it a job. I love working in business, managing finances, making decisions, and creating new concepts. I absolutely love it, and it's something I've loved since I was 13. So my question is, how can I do what I love? Should I still try to go to college or find an alternative? If so, what is that alternative? Um, well, let me hit the easy part first, because this is almost like begging for uh, an advertisement for Praxis. There is a great alternative called Praxis if you want to do a, a nine-month program where you have a professional boot camp to prepare you for working with entrepreneurs and then a six-month paid apprenticeship at a startup, working alongside entrepreneurs, learning, and you get a job offer at the end. You also get coaching and this intensive curriculum to help you be able to launch your own business now or in the future if that's what you want. It's break even financially. Um, so even if you're not sure if you might want to go to college later, this is a phenomenal way to figure out if that entrepreneurial path uh, or doing something other than classrooms is really a, a great fit for you. Um, but I want to briefly touch on one other thing in here, and then I want to TK see if you have a quick thought on this. This is the the, the most meaty of the questions, so it'll take a little bit longer on it. Uh, but in general, I want to move fast today. So where you say um, – in school, unless I'm in a subject I enjoy, I'm very reluctant to do anything. I just want to do what I love. Um, I want to follow my passion and make it a job. Now, that could mean a couple things. If you say you're reluctant to do anything that you don't enjoy um, because you know that you're wasting your time doing things that suck, then I am all about it. When you say you want to do what you love, you want to follow your passion and make it a job, if you mean... I don't want to waste time on things that I hate, that I know I don't want to pursue. I want to pursue things that I think will get me somewhere I want to be. I'm all about it. And I say, great. But there's another way that that can be used. I just want to do what I love. I just want to follow my passion. I don't want to do this other stuff. For some people, that can just be an excuse 
to not really do anything to say, because there's always a reason like, Oh, well, I love playing video games. So I wish I could get paid to do that. Oh, really? Okay. There are people who do. How about you make a profile on steam or whatever? I don't know all these platforms. How about you do game reviews on YouTube every single day, release one for a full year and build up your, you know, viewership and, and then maybe you can go and start demoing the, like there is a pathway to that. And then people will, well, well, yeah, but then I'm, but then I'm doing work and then I'm not just like having fun. And, and sometimes people don't really mean it when they say, I just want to follow my passion. They kind of mean, I just don't want to challenge. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, you're never going to be fulfilled if you're not willing to work your butt off, but don't work your butt off at things that you know, you hate. So there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. And I just think you need to know yourself well enough to know which one it really is. Is it just you imagining, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I could do what I love? Um, and you're imagining some world with, with no friction and no challenges, um, which, which doesn't exist unless you're like a complete prisoner who's fed and kept and has no freedom of choice, um, which is not any kind of life to live. Or do you really mean I am willing to work hard? I just don't want to work hard at stuff that's meaningless to me. If that's the case, get out and find something that, that means a little bit more, but I don't think you're going to find your passion by trying to find it. I think you just avoid the things that you know you hate and work hard at absolutely everything else that you don't hate. TK, do you have any any thoughts on that question? Absolutely. You know, um, one of the best pieces of advice that, that were given to me was by a friend in college. He said to me, you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to pay the price and accept the consequences of your actions. And I think a lot of times when people ask questions like this, they're focusing too much on passion rather than on priorities. Your passion is what you want or what you love or what makes you feel good to think about. But your priorities, that refers to, to what you're willing to orient your life around, mm. what you're willing to sacrifice for. You and I have had conversations before about the whole topic of what would you do if money were no object? You know, th there's a great Alan Watts video that you can go watch on that. And he says some beautiful things. And as much as I love that question, I think there's another question that people have to ask. And that is, what are you willing to do in spite of the fact that money and other things are an object? You know, because when you choose to follow your passion, it may very well be possible that family and friends might get concerned about you. You might have to make your mother a little nervous to do something that you want. You might lose some friends or you might have to deal with criticism for five to 10 years or even longer, depending however long it takes you to create results that are impressive enough for people to then pretend like they've supported you all along. You know, so if you're willing to pay the price of dealing with whatever you have to deal with in order to go after what you want, then go after it. When we were at the Till Summit two years ago, one of the startup founders who spoke there, he said, you know how passionate you are about something by how much shit you're willing to eat in order to have that. Mm. And so my question to you is, I don't care what you're passionate about. I want to know how much shit are you willing to eat for that particular thing? Mm. If it's only a little bit, then follow your priorities and don't follow your passion just because it's cliche or just because that's what the young kids are saying now nowadays. Do what you know you can live with. Because if your parents get mad at you for the choice you make, or if your girlfriend or boyfriend dumps you for the choice you make, I can't save you. I, I can't come deliver you from that challenge. And the only thing that will get you through is the fact that you have conviction, you don't doubt yourself, you believe in what you're doing, and you're willing to lay it on the line. So I, I would think more about how much shit I'm willing to eat for what it is I want to do. And if I'm willing to eat a lot of shit, 
then it doesn't matter what the risks are. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Go after what you want, whether that's in college or out of college. And if you want to know how to, to create opportunities and get better at these things, start by identifying people that are already doing what you want to do. Make a list of five people that are already doing it. And I don't care if the odds are low that they won't reply back to you. Find a way to email them, tweet them, get in touch with them in whatever way you can and, and ask for the opportunity to help them. In fact, look for an opportunity to help them by trying to identify something that they might be doing wrong and do it anyway and submit it to them. Take the risk of actually wasting your time by investing your energy and creating value for somebody in a field that you already want to work in. And like Isaac said, start creating stuff right now. I had a young man who said to me, I'm passionate about film, but I just don't have any opportunity. I, I told him, stop waiting for Hollywood or New York. People invest not, not in ideas and in passions, but in momentum. They invest in people that are already showing signs that they're ready to take a chance on doing things, even if they don't have the money or the perfect opportunity. Get your friends together. Create little skits on YouTube. Make some videos talking about the thing you're interested in. Start a blog. Start writing. Start showing people that you care enough about this thing to at least take the risk of putting yourself out there and going through the process of developing skill because nobody's going to invest in an emotional experience that you have. People are going to invest in your willingness to put it on the line and actually do some work. Keeping it real in the beehive. Keeping hey, it real. Uh, two, two articles real quick. Um, one was also a podcast, but how to not let your parents control you and how do you how to talk to your parents about doing something other than college. If you Google those, uh, maybe with my name or look them up on my website, um, a couple articles there. Cause I know that the parental thing is, is a part of that. Uh, next, next uh, question. Also my, my, my piece, a note to young dreamers. Hey, hey you don't, you don't, don't have time to, uh, we recommend <laughs> my pieces, not yours. Yes. TK has a phenomenal one actually on the Praxis blog, a note to young dreamers. What's it called? who don't feel supported by family and friends. You know my stuff got to be like uh, too wordy and long. <laughs> a note to young dreamers who don't feel supported by family and friends. Your titles are things <laughs> like on the balance between inside, external, and outside, <laughs> internal pursuits and passions. And it's like, man, why isn't this this post getting a lot of clicks? I'm like, well, oh, hold on. All you got to do is change the title to three reasons you're a loser. You know, good to go. Um, next question from Don Lim. And that is, when you have time, what podcasts do you listen to? TK? Oh, yeah. So um, I, I like um, Todd, uh, Todd Henry's podcast, The Accidental Creative. I also like to listen to uh, James Altucher's podcast. Uh, the Smart People podcast is another one that I enjoy. Um those would be three right off the bat. I also listen to Joe Rogan's show a little bit. Um, he, he's kind of funny as well and just an interesting, eccentric guy to listen to. Um, and I, I enjoy listening to lots of uh, Jason Silva's Shots of Awe. I mean, I have a whole list of about like Oh, is that in podcast podcasts, form too? I knew that was a YouTube channel, Shots of Awe. You know what? I, I just take podcasts to, you know, regardless of, of the platform of distribution. I don't know if he, if he delivers it. Outside of YouTube, Wait, so, you, so you so you listen to most of these via YouTube. I actually 
actually listen to most of my podcasts via YouTube, even I've when never they're understood that. People, people yeah. tell me that they do that. I don't get it. Like you have to have a window open all the time. You got it's. I don't understand. But you don't have an iPhone, so I guess you know you're you're. No, no, no. To, so, so, so when I'm when I'm driving or you know going for a walk, I prefer or like I'm I'm traveling like via airplane. I prefer to do that kind of stuff on my phone. I I listen a lot that way. But when I'm at home. Most of the time when I listen to podcasts is when I'm working from my computer and, I, and I'm doing tasks that need to be done, but I don't have to concentrate see, a whole I lot. I don't you like having I mean? extra tabs open. I, so see, what do you do I, during I that time? Do you always play it on your phone? Then I use you always play it on your phone? Yeah, I always play it on my phone. Yeah. Huh. Minimize those tabs, dude. Got to minimize the tabs. All right. So, Don, let me give you um, – I just pulled up my podcast uh, uh, app on my phone. So what do I have in here? Um Patterson in Pursuit, great new podcast by Steve Patterson. Uh, the way I heard it with Mike Rowe, I just subscribed to. I haven't listened to any of them yet, but I'm interested. Um, Lean Startup, occasionally listen to that one. Um, Joe Rogan, I hardly ever listen, but occasionally. Uh, the World Wanderers podcast, um, Revolutionary Parent Radio, uh, The Multiplier Mindset with Dan Sullivan, Jeff Till's 500 Years good friend of mine, startup grind. Um, this week in startups, probably the ones I listen to the most are this week in startups, the James Altucher show and the Tim Ferriss show, uh, econ talk school sucks podcast. Those are sort of my regulars in the mix there. Um, okay. Next question. Please share the ideas you are currently wrestling with. Now I thought that was a pretty interesting question. I like the word wrestle. The ideas that you're currently wrestling with. Um, TK, I'll let you think for a second because I read this earlier and thought got, got to think about it for just a second. I would say right now, like very, very right now, there are sort of two separate categories of ideas that I'm kind of playing around with, wrestling with. One is just on the very practical business side. Um, how do you identify and connect with a well-defined but highly fragmented target market. Um, so that's something sort of just in, in the business and marketing side I'm, I'm always thinking about and I'm always trying to, to crack some new method or new technology. Um, more philosophically, TK and I have talked about this quite a bit lately and throughout, throughout the years, but lately, but I've been thinking a lot about what is the actual gap between respectable opinion and crazy fringe conspiracy theory. What, what is the actual gap? Like, do we dramatically overvalue or undervalue one or both of those? Um, are they closer than we think? Are they further than we think? Should conspiracies and, and sort of non mainstream ideas be taken even less seriously should they be taken more seriously? Should mainstream ideas be taken less seriously? Should they be taken more seriously? What is that continuum and how do you sort of keep yourself in check there? Just sort just sort of personally, I'm not like all of society. Um, and then related to that, is there a way to crack that? It is so hard to genuinely explore crazy and often bad ideas dispassionately without people getting so worked up without them, without, you know, you feel like you don't have the permission from people to do that without them 
labeling you as a supporter of that thing. So let's say you're going to explore some horrendous idea or unpopular idea or crazy idea just to bring true logical rigor to it, uh, not to prove or disprove it necessarily, although you might in the process, but just to understand it dispassionately. That's so hard to do with so many ideas because they're so loaded. And I always want to like crack that. I want to like get people off of their fear of what will happen if you look at this crazy idea dispassionately without just immediately like dismissing it out of hand and and not assume that you support the idea just because you want to analyze it. Does that make sense? I always want to like dispassionately analyze some of the most horrendous and crazy ideas that I don't agree with. I want to analyze them to like really put them to a true logical test instead of just being dismissive. But I almost feel like that you, you're not even allowed to do that without people assuming that you support the idea. So those are probably things that I've been wrestling with lately. TK, what about you? Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting that when it, when it comes to the, the issue you're wrestling with is that most people who refuse to analyze those ideas refuse to do so because of some sort of principle that says, I will give credibility to the idea merely by acknowledging it. And I actually think it's the reverse. The best way to keep an idea that doesn't deserve credibility from gaining credibility is by dragging it into the light of scrutiny and subjecting it to the same level of rational analysis as we would any idea. However, when you act as if you're afraid to touch an idea, you run away from it, you act nervous around it, you get uncomfortable when people ask you questions about it, it actually allows people who believe in that idea to gain more confidence and say, see, see, they don't want to touch this. It actually makes those ideas look good. And maybe the ideas are good, maybe the ideas are bad, but, but, but I think people do a disservice to the pursuit of truth and to what the Socratic method is really all about when they choose not to analyze certain ideas. Philosophy is about basing judgments off of the arguments and not the absurd sounding nature of the conclusion. So two cents on that. What am I wrestling with? So, so I've been hearing the phrase Christian nation or the phrase like good Christian man or Christian leader come up a lot during this time of political unrest or during this time of, you know, the, the, the presidential, uh, the presidential race. And a lot of people are throwing this phrase around and it just sort of got me thinking, just, this is actually, uh, I had an interesting conversation with my wife about this just the other day about how, when you think about the person that Christianity is derived from, when you think about Jesus, I don't get any indication from my readings of the Bible and my engagement with the Christian tradition that Jesus ever felt worry or anxiety about his ability to influence the world and alter society because of the political environment. I never received any indication that Jesus saw his power, his ability to use that power as being dependent on who was the ruler at that time or what the political conditions were at that time. He just seems to not be concerned with that at all. He's very concerned with right and wrong. He's very concerned with truth and, and affecting people. But here's, a, here's someone who had this ability to heal the sick, raise the dead, forgive sins, empower people to change their minds. And not once did he say anything that could be confused for, yeah, but I won't be able to do this, or I won't be able to do this as much, 
if so-and-so becomes king or if so-and-so passes <laughs> this particular edict, right? And, and he actually, you know, according to the story, he actually lived under conditions where people were trying to do things to him. And, and, and he never spoke of the things that people were trying to do to him as if they had any effect whatsoever on his power. There's even a passage, I'm gonna wrap this up, where, where, where Pilate says, don't you know, to paraphrase, don't you know that I have the power to determine if you live or die? And even then, he says, well, you wouldn't even have that power unless that were like loaned to you, given to you by my father. So it's like, Pilate, you're, you're just a chess piece piece in a cosmic match that I created that you don't even understand, man. You know, there was a sense of power. And so given the fact that the, that the idea of being a Christian or making this a Christian nation comes up again in politics, one of the things I'm wrestling with and thinking about a lot is what does it take? to be the kind of person who experiences his or her power in a way that is unthreatened by what's going on politically? What did Jesus understand that allowed him to experience his power in that way? And in what way am I conditioned into thinking ignorantly or thinking powerlessly that, that causes me to, to be so separate from, from that sort of state of mind that he had? That's what I'm wrestling with right now. Man, yeah. there's an amazing passage that has always stuck out to me where it's Palm Sunday, actually, where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey and everyone's laying palms in front of him. And the, and the palms actually represented like Jewish nationalism, more or less, that the, the last coins that were printed before the Romans took over had a palm on them. And so this represented this sort of implication of a of a political movement to overthrow Roman rule and to restore it. And so a lot of people believed in Jesus as this, the, the one who was promised and they envisioned this promised, you know, leader to be a political leader. And so they were, and they were yelling Hosanna, which meant in a very physical way, come and save. It wasn't like spiritual salvation. That's not what Hosanna meant. It meant save us from these political rulers. And it, and it says in this passage, Jesus wept and he said if only you knew the things that make for peace if only you knew the things that make for peace and it's just this really powerful moment where everyone's asking for this physical political savior and Jesus is crying and saying you don't get it you don't get it i you know i bring something so much more powerful it makes mm -hmm whoever your political ruler is and whoever's face is on your coin, completely irrelevant. Why are you stressing about that when you have something so much more powerful in your grasp? Um, that's a, that's a great, that's a great point. Man, that's a really powerful point. And I suppose somebody listening to that might be able to say, well, sure. If I had the ability to raise people from the dead, I wouldn't be so concerned about Hillary or Trump either. Right. Because you have the ultimate power. But, but then he kind of makes it difficult for you to finagle your way out of that by saying things like, greater things will they do than I. You know what I mean? It kind of kind of takes away yeah. your, your excuse. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Uh, good stuff. Um, Billy Kramer asks, he says, okay, we have a local challenge for you. Some of the neatest kids that we know spend their free time making and selling palmetto roses here in Charleston, where I live. Uh, selling them to tourists. Tourists like to buy from younger kids, and these guys are about to turn 12, so they're aging out a bit. 
what can children trying to support their families here in Charleston do next? Well, I don't claim to have any really good local knowledge. I've been in Charleston for five years, but I travel a lot and I'm not super plugged in to specific Charleston things, but this is super cool. I posted this to Facebook yesterday when I uh, saw the question. And uh, Billy, if you go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Isaac Morehouse, yesterday I have a post that says, you know, basically re-asks the question, what can a 12-year-old do to earn some money? I got 41 comments of phenomenal ideas. I'm not going to read them all, but a couple of them I thought were pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> one says, explain Snapchat to me. Um, but my 11-year-old doesn't get Snapchat either, so that might not be uh, <laughs> might not be relevant. Um, so we have several things like eBay consignment, Etsy crafts, um, things like uh, starting and building and monetizing a YouTube channel, a lot of sort of internet-based things, um, which may or may not be relevant. Then we have some of the common ones like lawn mowing. Um, we have, oh, one that I thought of was, okay, so if you're in Charleston, for example, it's not a very big city, so you can get around most of it on foot or by bike. But it's big enough to where there's a decent number of like restoration or construction projects or painting projects where there could be a crew of people working. And if you just make the rounds and buy them, offer to go and fetch lunch, coffee, you know, Mountain Dew, Skull, if they're drywall contractors and that's the kind of stuff that they consume. Um, and and for, for pay or even to just keep the change um, – I think you could do really well. Probably you'd have to establish a little trust if you hadn't done it before. So maybe you'd have to front the money the first time and get paid back so that they didn't think you're going to run off with your money. But being kind of a, a an errand person um, for people sort of in the downtown area that are doing service jobs and things like that, or even people that work at, um, you know, some of the kiosks and things and they can't get away. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of tourists, you know, that you could, you could do, um, do that for somebody else mentioned, okay, well, babysitting was mentioned. Uh, walking kids, younger kids on the block to school, um, dog walking, uh, picking up dog poop for people, which is actually a great business. Like, Hey, 10 bucks and I'll pick up the poop in your yard. Um, we had somebody else say, this is a really cool one. I'm going to skip down to this one. And then, uh, let's see here. Where is it? Okay. So <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Casey McGough, uh, who's actually a practice participant. Step one. Find an angel investor, mom, and ask for $100. Step two, ask said angel investor for a ride to Home Depot or Lowe's to buy a cheap power drill and a pack of two-inch wood screws. Step three, you're down to 45 or 50 bucks at this point. The investor wants to see a return on your money. Step four, ask investor for Amazon password, then buy five to six mounted bottle openers. Step five, Go door to door and install them on the spot for a flat rate of $20. Wash and repeat for three cash cycles, payback investor, hire your dumber next door neighbor to start doing it for you while you focus on selling. Be sure to target the neighbors who have back porches and or pools first. An unsuspecting father can't turn down an entrepreneurial youngster who wants to help him open his beers without even getting up. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. A drill and a couple wood screws, and a few of those little metal mounted bottle openers and go door to door saying, Hey, I'll install this for you for, you know, it takes two screws for 20 bucks. Um, 
I mean, if someone came to mind were saying that, that they'd install a beer opener on the deck for me on the back porch for 20 bucks, there is no way I could say no to that. My only problem is I usually don't have cash on me. So that, you know, that could, <laughs> I'd have to break into my kid's piggy bank. I thought that was a really cool one, but we have a lot of them. Um, so go check out this Facebook post to get a whole bunch more. Um, I think, I think it can be hard at first when you're stuck in one paradigm, but when you start to open it up a little bit, the possibilities are endless. TK, did you have anything in particular that a 12 year old might be able to do to, to earn some money? No, man, I, I read that status update and all the answers and I second that they were really awesome. And you definitely got to go take a look to get more detail. All yeah, stuff there. Great, great question, Billy. Um, and definitely do go check out that post because I, I had one or two ideas, but uh, crowdsourcing it, we got, like I said, 41 um, and some of them were super cool. Um, OK, last question before we turn over to Facebook and see what we got stirring up over there. Uh, this actually came through Twitter. Uh, Vake. Mm-hmm. His Twitter handle is at Vake Raj asked, and it was a while ago and I couldn't find the exact tweet for the way that he worded it. Sorry, Vake. Um, but it was essentially, what do you think about children working in sweatshops? Or maybe it was, what do you think of bans on sweatshops? Um, super easy. Uh, bans on sweatshops hurt the very people they're intending to help, period. Um, what do I think of children working in sweatshops? I mean, I guess it's, it's a opportunity for them that's better than their alternatives. So I'm happy that they've got that. And I assume that if they continue to uh, work and create value, that'll open up more opportunities for them. Do I wish that there could be, you know, better opportunities, better, you know, more wealth so that maybe you didn't have to work in a place without air conditioning or whatever other conditions. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, but I also wish that I made twice as much money as I do. I wish that everybody did, but that's not a reality. So given the realities of today, you can't fall into the Nirvana fallacy and say, well, compared to a world where children all can do whatever I imagine is good for children, sweatshops suck. Well, that world that you're imagining doesn't exist. So compared to the actual possible relevant alternatives for those children living in those cities where these so-called sweatshops are located, what are their alternatives? If the sweatshop is banned or it never opens up in the first place, what are they doing? The reality is they're doing things that are worse. They're doing really grueling farming, physical labor. Sometimes as awful as it is, they're turning to prostitution because they need money in a desperately poor situation. Sweatshops provide something that is far better than all the alternatives, which is why the minute they open up, people are lining up out the door to work there because it is so much better than what used to be. Milton Friedman has a great little um, scene in the uh, Free to Choose series on PBS, and they're all on YouTube now, I believe. But I think it's in the opening one where he talks about his parents. They worked in a sweatshop, essentially. They worked in the garment district in New York in a textile factory like 12 hours a day or more, no air conditioning, what today would be considered sweatshop labor. They were thrilled to have it. They were thrilled to be able to get this job to provide enable their son to go to a prestigious university and become a a world-renowned professor in just one generation. And if you cut that opportunity off, they would be doing something worse. They would have less chance to move up, not more. So uh, that's uh, that's my answer to that. Um, TK, anything to add before we turn over to uh, Facebook? Yep, I'm, I'm looking at the definition of a sweatshop right now. And it says a factory or a workshop especially in the clothing industry where manual workers are employed at very low wages 
for long hours and under poor conditions. I wanted to get that right because a lot of people use the term sweatshop as a catch-all term for any working condition that's undesirable, including physically abusive ones. And I want to just make sure that we establish a proper context by saying an environment where you're working for low wages under less than ideal or undesirable, uncomfortable situations, people should be free to voluntarily choose to do that if that's given their circumstances, the best option available to them. I just wanted to throw that in there. Make sure we got that proper definition, but let's move on. All right, man. Let's hit up the Facebooks. I see that uh, so far I have one, two, three, four, five. I have six questions and you only have one. Oh, you're in trouble though, because I have a trump card. I have, I have a trump card that you don't even know about, brother. But let's Dude, go ahead. Let's go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll let you. I'll let you enjoy the enjoy the thought of thinking that you're ahead in the game. Come on. <laughs> All right. Uh, notice I trouble, did not brother. tag you in my post, and you did tag me in yours. So probably the fact that you I think, tagged I think that's me, what brought my numbers down. Yeah. No, it's the thing that brought you. It's the only thing that got you <laughs> one question. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Uh, Danny Benavidez. If the NFL, NBA, and other pro sports leagues had no salary cap, would there really be super dream teams? Look, I don't know for sure, but I, I would say it. I think it would look different than it does now, but not as dramatically as most people assume. Uh, I think the MLB actually would probably be the one that's the most different because you're going to have those couple teams, those Yankees, those, if they didn't have to pay that luxury tax. Now they don't have a, a salary cap in the same way as the NFL and NBA do, but they have this luxury tax and they still pay it. But I think if they didn't have it, they'd probably juice it up even more. And baseball would actually be, it'd probably be better for the sport because um, baseball only attracts the casual fan when there's like one amazing team or two amazing teams, something really dramatic going on, Red Sox, Yankees. Um, but in terms of the NFL and NBA, I think you would get it a little bit more than you have it now, but there are natural economic forces that I think would keep it from getting too out of hand. Like, you know, um, if you had all the stars going to, you know, one team going to the, the New York Knicks, I think there is something that happens. Only so many great players can play on the same team because they have other things. You got to remember these guys are only getting paid a salary by the NBA for, you know, 10, 15 years max. And that's often not the bulk of their money. If they're some of the best players, they often make as much or more in endorsements. And then after their NBA career, all their money comes from endorsements and things like that. So if you are the fourth best player on the New York Knicks and you're even if there's no salary cap, you're making good salary. Even if you had to take a five million dollar a year salary cut to go be the greatest player that's ever played in the state of Minnesota, that actually might be better for you, for your career, for your legacy. It might let you make the all-star team, or you might not, if you're with crowded out by other great players. It might let you get a bunch of endorsements, both local and national. It'd change your story, your narrative. TK and I talk about this all the time. The narrative is what makes greatness. It's not what actually happens. It's the story we tell about it. And that story is usually written Mostly in retrospect, not so much while it's happening. We don't know how to interpret everything. Like right now, we don't know how to interpret the fact that the Warriors lost. If they go on to win the next three titles and beat the Cavs and Curry outplays LeBron, this loss could go could actually add to their greatness once we're in the future and looking back on the past. If they never win another one, 
this loss could make could be the thing that made them irrelevant. But we don't know yet. It's about the narrative down the road. So the narrative impacts all that stuff and it has a financial impact. So I think there are some some reasons to suspect that it wouldn't just be three or four epic teams and a bunch of irrelevance. There are some forces and especially today where like living in Oklahoma City yeah, maybe it sucks compared to living in LA, but not nearly as much as it once did because travel is easier. We're all digital. We're all on online. Being in a small media market is not as much of a, a hurt, a, a hit on your ability to capitalize financially as it once was because the media market is, uni- it's, it's, you don't need a guy in New York with a camera to be present. You don't need to be in the city where the studio is located like you once did. So um, it would make a difference, but maybe not as much as people think. TK, what do you think? No, to add to the narrative idea, is this not what just happened with LeBron James? If you go back to the video of LeBron announcing that he's taking his talents to South Beach and you look at the comments, think of all the evil things people are saying about him. Think about the way Dan Gilbert you know, just wrote that letter. <laughs> Say what? No, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just, no, no, I'm I, just I, laughing. I, I'm just laughing that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So we thought the best way to interpret what he did, I believe it was in 2010, was, you know, oh, he's a beta. He's not being alpha enough. He's going to make it easy. Jordan, I, I still do think that's the best interpretation, but even if the world disagrees. But 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 many of the people are choking. on. Let's just take the Cleveland fans alone, right? We know they had to do an about face, right? The Cleveland fans had their minds made up what they thought about LeBron when they were burning those jerseys. But now that he's come back, what he just did for the city, it doesn't mean the same thing, man, if he didn't break their hearts. So the, the, the narrative can change. You know, the, the narrative can't evolve. Um, okay, Tim Shermack, will the Lakes go oh. <laughs> all the way this year? Okay, uh, wait, wait. Was that on your wall too? Man, did he post it on your wall as well? Uh, that was my trump card. That See, you, there you go. I just robbed your trump card. You were so <laughs> cocky. The narrative changed right, at, right after I said that thing about LeBron. Tim, I listen, I, listen I know why you're asking this question, Tim. Not to disrespect the WNBA. Uh, I don't follow it at all. But I know you're asking this because you're in Minnesota and you've got absolutely nothing in the world of sports, pro or college, going right for you at all, except for the links. So that's why you're latching on. I have no idea. You would know better than I do, Tim. That's from Tim Shermack. TK, what do you got? <laughs> all right. So um, here's a topic Edward Craig wants to hear our thoughts on. Edward says, the libertarian community is way short, too late on the issue, on the issue of municipal police violence. It's in fact almost invisible. That needs to change. Everyone with an audience must divorce themselves from the weird racial idiocy of early Rockwell type stuff. The stain of those words so many years ago continues to haunt and hamper what should be a cataclysmic growing movement. Time to take on the harder cases, fellas. Now for clarification, someone said, what does that have to, someone replied to him and said, what does that have to do with what TK just requested? And, and he says this, he followed up and said, an African-American man and a white dude, I love that I'm a man and you're a dude, an African-American man and a white dude who work together building a business might have a lot to say about racial issues, philosophy, interactions with police, and what it means to really be skeptical of government authority. Too many libertarians are bootlickers. Time to, time to end that. Now, I know how I feel about some of these issues. I want you to take the lead on this one just because when it comes to libertarian culture, 
I mean, he lost me when he made a Rockwell reference. I honestly, <laughs> I'm not playing dumb. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. Like, like, you know what I mean? I, I don't know what that reference means when he says they need a disassociate. I've never been associated with Rockwell. So this is shows disassociating. I, I'm, I'm curious with the libertarian element. What's your take on how this issue has been treated in libertarian culture? Has this been ignored? Do you feel like libertarians have not been hard enough on these issues? And, and, and then let's riff for a minute on our thoughts about what's going on now. Yeah, Edward, uh, well, I absolutely love the sentiment of, A, this is a serious police brutality and violence and often disproportionately uh, against blacks and and other minorities for uh, various incentive reasons. And we've talked about this at length on another episode of this podcast um, on uh, the episode called... uh, uh, it's not about it's not, race. Yeah. 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 Um, and he, even a few others. While I, while I appreciate that sentiment and, and share your frustration and disgust with that, I hate this question, man. I just, I just do not, I don't care about what the community, the movement, the insert collective here should do, ought to do. I don't care about some amorphous group trying to police them or tell them what they should or shouldn't do. Whether I'm a member of that group uh, by you know my, my own identity or other people think I am or whether I'm not, there's just something about that that strikes me as completely backwards and counterproductive. This, you know, libertarians need to do this. Libertarians need to stop doing this. Libertarian, just do it yourself. Just do what you want to do. You think a case needs to be made for something? Make the damn case. You think people need to be nicer? Be nicer. You don't need to go around talking about libertarianism because I I just think it comes off completely the wrong way. It's begging other people who identify as libertarian to think you are calling them evil or bad or that they're missing the point and begging them to do exactly what you say is you don't want to see, which is to come back and be like, well, I don't think this issue is getting ignored, which makes them look insensitive to it. And then it's this big spiral. Forget all of that. Forget it. Just focus on you. Get more creative. This is like, look, treat ideas as if you're running a business, as if it's a product and you need to get people to buy. If you launch a business and you have a product and nobody's buying it, the last thing you do is go out and maybe they're all visiting your website, but they're just not buying it very much. Would you go to Facebook and start being like, look, the thing that my website visitors need to do is stop dicking around and reading the text and they need to start buying the product. Something is wrong with you. You don't understand the value of this product. You're trying to convince them to do something differently and that it will benefit them by telling them that they're an idiot, by treating this collective group as if they owe you some kind of action, as if you're so frustrated that they don't get it. They're not as smart as you. They're not as sensitive as you. They're not as whatever it might be. That is the worst possible way to motivate people to change if you're really interested in that change. If And, and I would say interested in that change is fine. Needing that change is dangerous. Now you're making yourself a slave. If you need libertarians to behave a certain way or to be perceived as a certain thing by non-libertarians, then you've got a problem. Either stop identifying as a libertarian or just stop caring what people think. So I don't like getting wrapped up in all that collectivist BS and policing and all this kind of stuff. Go do what you want to do. Do it more creatively and better than anybody else has. You start posting articles and videos of police abuse, interesting, provocative questions that don't start by telling people, 
Hey, none of you care about this enough. If there's one thing I think everybody gets turned off by on social media, it's the post that's like, here's an issue and something I believe about insert some sentence about how none of you care enough about this. Like I do. It's like a bumper sticker that says, you know, I recycle by implication. I'm a better person than you. Cause I bet you don't like that kind of stuff is just stupid. It doesn't help. It doesn't. So I'm not trying to pick on you, Edward. I'm truly not. But I think thinking in terms of collectives and movements, what they ought to do, what to think about yourself. If you have close friends and you see them doing something that you think is detrimental to them or that you think if they had more information, they wouldn't do individually reach out to them and say, Hey man, I saw that post the other day. You know, I think it'd be interesting if you took it from this angle, maybe you'd learn something and maybe you'd help persuade people if that's your goal, like go out one-on-one -on -one to the people you're close enough with, but otherwise just do it yourself, man. Be that, be that example. And, uh, you know, in terms in terms of the race stuff, I mean, I don't want to get into, I don't think there's anything all that much more to say that TKI and I didn't cover in that episode. I mentioned it's not about race, um, except to say that I think we need to focus on why bad things are happening disproportionately to blacks and other minorities. It's, it's not because people just dislike blacks and minorities because there are a lot of people who dislike blacks that don't go out and shoot them. I mean, right. It's an incentive structure that enables that to happen. It's the belief in the necessity of government monopolized law enforcement. That is, I think fundamentally the problem that's going on here. And I think that's a very important problem, but go about it in a creative way. Who I didn't mean to get so ranty TK. Nah, man, you, you, you got, you got to let it loose, man. This is the beehive Edward. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to say back to you words that you wrote on a status update 22 minutes ago. The last part of that status, you say, if you're looking for a group to be anything other than a momentary notion of solidarity, you're wildly misguided. Your tribal race or ethnicity is meaningless. All I want to know is you, the individual. Don't care about anything else. If you're swept up in that oceanic group filling, you're part of the problem. And I mean it. So. I think that reinforces something Isaac just talked about, um, something I referenced in, a, in a, another conversation we had. There is a, a YouTube video, a conversation between Carl Hess and Robert Anton Wilson called Subversion for Fun and Profit. And at one point, Robert Anton Wilson, they're talking about political philosophy. And Robert Anton Wilson says, I consider myself a libertarian, but I only say that because most people don't know what the word anarchist means. And I, I feel that way oftentimes. Most people, I don't have time to explain what I mean when I say political atheists or what anarcho-capitalism is all about. And so I'm not uncomfortable with people saying, oh, you're a libertarian. That's cool. That's fine. But for the most part, I never attended a libertarian event or um, attended a function that was known as a libertarian function uh, for the, uh, until about three years ago. And I don't have a sense of the history that creates a lot of the hangups that people have about libertarian culture. Like I, I, I haven't been around to be enough to be wounded by the libertarians. I, I'm, I'm not the kid that grew up in the libertarian church, so to speak, you know, um, I'm, I'm new to the culture. So I don't feel like I need to go out of my way <laughs> to, so to, to so many people. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, we'll we'll see. It. I don't even know that. Right. I don't, I don't have any, I don't know enough to be the kind of dude who goes out of his way to be like, no, 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 don't call me a libertarian because those are the stupid people. You know, don't call me that. Like, if you want to call me that, I'm, I'm cool with that. 
And if you have time to listen to a more nuanced explanation of how the details of my libertarianism parcel out, we can go into it that way as well. But I don't spend a lot of time getting hurt or getting angry about libertarians in a way that is somehow different from how I get hurt or angry by what everybody else is doing. So when you say a lot of libertarians are bootlickers, my response to that is a lot of people are bootlickers. In fact, I would say most people are statists, if that's what we're talking about by the term bootlicker. And I don't think libertarians have any kind of special monopoly on being statist in their thinking. Um, I've always been disappointed by the extent to which people who claim to love liberty um, seem to have a lack of imagination about how the free market can provide things like education and security in a way that would outperform uh, the government. I've always been disappointed by that. So I I'm not so sure if I think libertarians are special in this regard. Now, perhaps you have a lot of people using the label, not knowing what the label means, not representing it or whatever as they should. But I think that's true of every philosophy, every religion. and I think to be a true, maybe one label I like, voluntarist, I think to be a true voluntarist is to be a radical individualist and to say, I am defined by who I choose to be and by what I choose to believe. I'm going to fight for what I fight for and represent what I represent. And no matter how passionate I am about something, there will always be people who seem to me to not care enough, to not have the right priorities, to not handle their responsibilities. And where I have influence, I will exercise it. But at the end of the day, my life is about doing what I can do to have the impact that I need to have. Does the monopoly on violence that, that, is, that is currently possessed by the state in terms of policing need to end? Absolutely. Would I be happy if more people believe that? Absolutely. Would I be happy if more libertarians and conservatives and liberals and everybody else spoke up about that more? Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, I, I haven't been around the libertarian community enough to say that I'm uniquely angry at people who identify as libertarians in a way that I'm not angry at everybody else. I'm angry at everybody you know, <laughs> for, uh, for, for trusting in authority as if we should be guided by something external. I'm you know what we should start doing, man, in the show notes? I should start doing out of context quote of the day. And <laughs> TK, I'm angry at everybody. I like that. I'm going to, you should make that your, um, like your Twitter, you know, bio or something. <laughs> hey man, angry, you, I'm typing it right now. I'm angry at everybody. This is perfect. Hey, you, you know, what's cool though. I'll, I'll say one thing about race and the difference between the free market and how it handles problems versus this long winded, convoluted, inefficient, bureaucratic political process. Take Airbnb, for instance. There was a hashtag about a month ago, Airbnb Black. And I know people are getting nervous now. You're, you're saying the word race. You're creating a problem. You're dividing us, TK. So Airbnb Black <laughs> hashtag. Uh, that's how people think, man. Airbnb hashtag. Was that Airbnb, your white voice? Because I find that no, offensive. No, no, that wasn't my white voice, man. That was my <laughs> nerve voice. That was my nerve voice. <laughs> just... black, 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 black people say that stuff, too. Um, don't be racist, Isaac. Don't bring up race. Um, <laughs> Hey, so Airbnb Black was a hashtag, and basically what you had going on Twitter was a lot of African Americans were complaining that when they would try to book a room via Airbnb, they were getting turned down. People were saying, oh, the room's not available, and then they have a white friend call in the next minute, and all of a sudden the room will be available, right? So people were complaining about it. Now, here's what happened in politics. Here's what happens in politics. Everybody gets into endless debates where hardly anybody's mind changes about 
you're making race an issue. How do you know that was about race? Give me some scientific evidence that you can uh, discern that person's intentions or read their mind and know that it was about race. Why do people always got to bring up race? You're making race an issue. It probably wasn't even about race. And even if it was, people got the right to the blah, 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 blah. And it just goes on and on. And everybody thinks what they think. And people, you know, oh, you're being victims over here. Oh, you white supremacists, you're not acknowledging the truth of systemic racism. Oh, quit bringing up race. You're dividing us all. Those conversations don't happen. I mean, th 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 it doesn't happen in the free market like that. Here's what happens. Um, about, about a month later, and I don't know if you'll succeed, but this is so typical of the free market and so atypical of the political process. An entrepreneur comes out and he launches a startup. He launches a startup that is attempting to do what Airbnb does, but what he's going to do is promote diversity in order to make those customers feel like they are safe and they are respected. Now, he's got a challenge just like every entrepreneur. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't. Maybe it's harder than he thinks, maybe the opportunity is right and he's gonna succeed. But as an entrepreneur, you do not have the luxury of being arrogant and defensive when your customers say, I'm unhappy with the way you're servicing me. Because you don't get to do business unless you find a way to make that customer happy. So when entrepreneurs receive complaints, they don't say things like you're hallucinating or you're crazy or you're making something an issue when it's not. Because to an entrepreneur, the perception of a problem is a problem. If you're unhappy, then that's a problem. Now, I can either service you or not. And if I service you, it doesn't matter if your problem isn't a problem for me. It doesn't matter if I think you're crazy or not. The only thing that matters is how do I make you happy? How do I service you in a way that, that satisfies you? And if I don't do that, I incentivize my competition to enter the marketplace and do a better job than me at satisfying the customers that I don't care enough about. Mm -hmm. And you don't really see this kind of efficiency when there are problems in a state. What we're getting right now is a bunch of debates about whose story was right when all that should matter is that the people that are supposed to be served and protected, they're unhappy. And if you think they're crazy, I want you to try in the real world. When your wife comes home <laughs> and she complains about something, I want you to say, you're making that up, honey. I want you to say, that's not a real issue. That's not a problem for me. I think you're creating that with your mind. I think you're making work an issue when it's really not. You, you'll find out very quickly that in the free market, it never works when you dismiss people's problems by telling them that they're just making an issue when it's not. In entrepreneurship, it doesn't matter. If people are unhappy, that's an opportunity to serve them and they end up getting served because people are motivated by self-interest to get in the game of looking out for them. You don't have that opportunity to see those kinds of results in the current system that we have because competition is de-incentivized. They have all sorts of regulatory hurdles that they have to overcome just to enter into the game and compete. I believe the people that feel disenfranchised can easily be made to feel happy, but that's only when a legally enforced monopoly on violence is removed. Hey, you man, and, and, and you've got to let that process happen and not allow your intentions try to shut down. Oh, quick, quick. We need to shut down the racist or we need to shut down the people who are complaining about the potential racist or we, ah, this, this conversation is bad. It could lead to bad things. That's the political mindset because you worry mm -hmm. someone, there's going to be a winner and a loser based on however this is interpreted politically. And we got We got to shut it all down. And if you think politically, you make your intentions to stop racism and then you, you know, you ban people from 
um, turning people down for applying for Airbnb. And then, and then a lot fewer people list their houses on Airbnb because they want the ability to turn people down if they want to. And then the supplies are in and all these bad things happen based on good intentions or the other way around. You try to silence people's you know speech that you think is racist. If you just sit down and chill out, you said it was like a month later. That's like a long time in the news cycle, but that's, that's actually pretty awesome that that much stuff was going on behind the scenes. Let the process happen. Let people get angry. Let people respond to that. Just let it happen without immediately feeling the need to, oh, problem, someone's offended, someone, something bad, solve it. Come, come up with something, just solve it quickly. Just appease my good intentions with some solution. No, man, just, just let this process work out because the incentives are already present for someone to come up with a solution that's peaceable and beneficial, the incentives are far better in the marketplace, the incentives that are already there, than any incentives you inject when you try to make it political. So just stand back and chill out a little bit or, or innovate yourself. Do something that doesn't involve policy. I love it, man. Hey, let's, let's, uh, we got a few more questions that I think we can hit pretty fast. You ready? I'm ready, man. All right. Cameron Soresby, our coworker, and this, this gets a little funny because, uh, Derek starts to, our other coworker, starts to uh, to pick on Cameron. It's beautiful. Cameron says, who would win in one-on-one? Curry versus Westbrook, Jordan versus God, Kawhi Leonard versus Pop, Greg Popovich, Coleman versus Morehouse. I'm going to hit these real quick. Curry versus Westbrook, I'm going to take Curry because three points is worth more than two. Jordan versus God, I'm going to take Jordan because God specifically put that part of the divine, which has to do with basketball, into Jordan. So it would be like God's basketball skills against God's non-basketball skills. So I'm going to take Jordan. Kawhi versus Pop, I'm going to take Pop because all Pop would have to say is give me the ball every time and let me score and Kawhi would obey. Coleman versus Morehouse, we've seen this one play out many times and Morehouse comes out every time. All right, Curry versus Westbrook, I'm disagreeing with you, and I'm going with Westbrook. I think in a one-on-one where Curry isn't surrounded by a pack of wolves, I think Westbrook would annihilate him. I think Westbrook would just be all over him. Westbrook is a monster. I honestly believe he would destroy Steph Curry in a one-on-one game. Um, Jordan versus God, I'm going to quote Larry Bird when Jordan dropped like 63 points against the Celtics. He said, it was God despised this Michael Jordan. So this is a false dichotomy. (laughs) Kawhi versus Pop, I'm going with Pop all the way because, uh, as you said, Pop has to just tell Kawhi what to do, and Kawhi will do it. Coleman versus Morehouse, if we play today, if we play today, maybe you'd win because I think you're in better shape than me. Um, Back in the day when (laughs) – We played back in the day. (laughs) Back in the day when we played, you won, but I I put an asterisk on it because – it's sort of like the finals when Bogut and Iggy got hurt and Draymond got suspended. I put an asterisk on it because, one, I didn't have my shoes, and you had home court advantage. So, I mean, you know, for what it's worth. I mean, you won, technically. Technically, you won. But I don't know if I really so, respect it. So, so Derek McGill <laughs> follows up this question, uh, who would win between Derek and Little Cameron? Um, I, I know he's just trolling, but if we're talking basketball – uh, Cameron would win. If we're talking about, um, a contest where you're attached to bungees and you're running in this big inflatable thing and you're trying to reach a goal against the resistance of the bungee, uh, Derek would win because I saw it happen. In fact, he just blew on Cameron and Cameron fell over. So, um, okay. Uh, Cameron asks, what's been one of the coolest Praxis participant stories or projects so far? There are so many and so many amazing ones. But I'm just going to say the one that's right on my mind right now, which is a project that a current participant is doing that I just donated like uh, on GoFundMe, 
um, one of our participants is building a lightsaber, right, TK? Did I? Uh, lose man, I'm so yeah, yeah, I, it was a connection issue. Yes, you can actually go on my Facebook page because I would say this is the coolest current thing right now as well. It's a dark core saber prototype. He's got a, a GoFundMe page. You just go on TK Coleman's Facebook page and you'll see it. Or you can actually just go to um, um, the, the GoFundMe page directly here. Um, but it, it is absolutely awesome. I mean, we're talking about something that I honestly think um, in the Star Wars community is going to be a major game changer and a huge hit. I think everybody in their mama, to quote Mark Jackson, mama, there goes that man. I think everybody in their mama is going to want one of these Darksaber prototypes. Dude, Mark Jackson has four phrases and then that's it. And then a bunch of filler words. He just those four oh. phrases over and over every game. Oh, wait, dude, I got to call you out on something live on the show. What? Speaking of speaking of the phrase, mama, there goes that man. But wait, wait, wait. OK, let, let's just close it out. The dark saber prototype by Praxis participant Alex Wall. All right. That question's answered. Mama, there goes that man. You 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 hit me up with a private boxer because you harass me a lot in private. And a lot of people don't know about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and, and you were referring to my Facebook Live video um, that I did early this morning where I told a story where I referred to my wife as my best friend in the world. And, and, and it annoyed you because I, you said I sounded like those ESPN uh, commentators when they when they call LeBron the best player in the world. On the planet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so stupid. You, you said that was weak, so so you got to expound, man. You, you got you got to explain yourself. Look, Why look, was that weak? Look, when you say my wife is my best friend in the world, like it's just cheesy. <laughs> like your wife, the category of wife is singular. It stands alone. <laughs> this is your everything, your life partner. You have attached yourself to this person in a way that is unique among all relationships. And it also includes, you know, like C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. It, in, it encapsulates <laughs> all four of those. Once you get to that, that highest level, everything else is implied. So when you say my wife is my best friend, you sound like you're pandering and trying to sound sweet and cool. And it's the kind of thing, it's like we talked about on the shit test episode. It's the kind of thing that all the women will say they like, and they'll say, Oh, that's so sweet. But in reality, they don't want the dude that says that they want the dude who's like, it's my wife. Like everything is implied by that word. You know, like we dude, know what so we awesome. are. I don't need to go out there and say you're my best friend, you know, dude, if, if I knew you would have got that mad at me for saying that, I would have paid Michelle to interrupt the video and say, bring your butt to bed right now. And, and, and then I would have looked at the camera and I would have said, mama, there goes that woman. And then I would have ran, <laughs> shut the computer down. Dude, I'm so glad you brought up. I was like, I was trolling you, just kind of messing around. But then I thought like maybe that one came off. Every once in a while, I never let you know this, but I do have a conscience. And every once in a while, I wonder if I go too far. Um, Hey, two, two last questions that should be pretty quick. You game? I'm ready, man. All right. Morgan Aldis asks, how do you convince parents that college is not a catch-all solution? Um, I've written and talked about this before on the podcast and on my blog. Uh, so TK, why don't you take this one? Oh, man. Um, I, I, I really think, you know, some, something that I'm a firm believer in is most people don't arrive at most of their beliefs by being philosophically argued into them. And most people aren't going to change those philosophical beliefs by being argued into different ones. 
most people pick up their beliefs, their perceptions of reality from the surrounding culture, from the incentive structure of which they are a part. So most parents believe that college is the end all be all of education because that's what most parents believe. And that's a concept that has been reinforced by everything from television shows they watch to media stories to what their other friends believe. At my age, I have a lot of friends that are having children. And one of the first things that like at least half of my friends say, as soon as they have a, have a kid, they, they say things like they start talking about the dreams and their goals. And they say things like, yeah, man, like I want, I want to be able to pay for her college, you know, or I'm, I'm imagining her one day growing up and being old enough to go to college. And, and they're not even thinking about the fact that 18 years from now, the landscape is going to be so different that there's a decent probability that college might not be the best chance for the kid that they just had. But they're not thinking about it philosophically in that way. They're, they're swept up in the momentum of what is the norm. And the way you change societal norms is not by grabbing people and arguing with them aggressively and getting upset that they think differently than you. The way that you change societal norms is something that you see throughout the history of innovation. You introduce little possibilities here and there. You create things. You don't, you don't change the world in the, in the abstract. You change the lives of specific individuals, of specific demographics. You start with people that are already receptive to your way of seeing the world and to your particular service or product, and you build from that basis. I mean, you know, you, you take something like Uber, for instance, everybody wasn't on the Uber bandwagon when it started out. And in fact, I've still got a lot of close friends and there are still a lot of people out there who are afraid of Uber. They're uncomfortable with it. You know, uh, Vankatish Raul talks about in the Breaking Smart series that there are usually two patterns that accompany any form of innovation. First, we expect too much of it, so we're hypercritical and hyperskeptical. But then once it becomes the norm, we expect so little of it and we take it for granted that it begins to blow our mind and minds and create a lot of exponential growth. So this is the norm for all forms of innovation. So I, I think the way you change things is you do the kinds of things that we're doing with Praxis. You do the kinds of things that Peter Thiel did when he had the, the, the Thiel Summit for a few years. You, you introduce specific examples for how people can pursue an alternative. Because you can criticize people all day long for the inefficiencies of what they do, but people don't change their lives just because you've pointed out imperfections. They, they change their lives because you presented a feasible alternative. So the way people see education isn't going to change no matter how inefficient college is, as long as that's the only visible viable option. You have to create specific things and tell people, hey, here's another way. And they're gonna be hyper skeptical of it at first, but you stick with it, you gradually build momentum, you do the best that you can and you change the world, one project, one business, one transformed life at a time. Man, the power of contrast is so, I think, easy to forget. When you see something you don't like and you want to you know, convince people away from it or change it or something, instead of talking about what's wrong with what you don't like, provide that contrast so that there's something to compare it to. Because the status quo is so big and so blinding that people truly forget that there even are alternatives. And so if you just say, college, man, that's a waste of time and money. You hardly get any value. All these things are just criticisms in the abstract. But compared to what? 
And people don't have a what to compare it to because they truly have never imagined. It's so dominant in their minds. They've never even imagined the possibilities that currently exist in front of them right now. Sometimes it's not even about creating something new. Sometimes there are things right now that people just don't see. But it can be creating it too, creating that contrast. And sometimes it's a story. Sometimes it's, a, it's an actual good or service. Sometimes it's highlighting things that are already there. But to, to just say, here's what's wrong with this idea or what you're doing here is so hard for people, even if they agree with you, to, to really understand, internalize, and act on. And, and really, I mean, that was my my big inspiration and motivation when we were first talking about Praxis was this, this thing like, man, I have understood why college is so ridiculous for a long time. From my own experience there, the absurdity of the cost and all this stuff, I have understood it, and I feel like a lot of other people kind of do, but why are they still doing it? It's the absence of something that they view as a viable alternative. So either it has to be created or they have to be shown that something that already does exist is viable. And that that's on me. Provide the contrast. I think that's I think that's huge. Um, how do you build? This is the last question, unless you have another one on your wall. How do you build a network on your own? similar to the one you get in traditional university. Well, the first thing I would say, this is from Simon Fraser, is um, I don't, I wouldn't want to build a network similar to one that you get in a traditional university. That's not a bad network, but I think it's not that valuable. It's valuable, but it could be a lot more valuable. So if you say, how do I build the most valuable network for myself? I'm going to say that's going to look a lot different than the one you're going to get in a university. Um, so <clears throat> Excuse me. University networks are predominantly horizontal. My colleague Zach Slayback likes to talk about this a lot. Predominantly horizontal networks. People your same age, um, roughly your same station in life. You know, they're they're mostly your peers. Few professors uh, here and there, but they're all in one industry, academia. Um, so it's not a very diverse network. It's not very vertically diverse, uh, or even in different fields and areas. So how do you build a great network? I think assuming that oh, college comes with a network, it's prefabricated, is really dangerous. So even if you are going to college, don't assume, oh, it will provide me with a network because you're not going to get very much value compared to what you could get. Be deliberate. What kind of people am I interested in? Who are people doing cool stuff? How can I find communities around that? You know, uh, oh, I loved this book. Maybe there's a private Facebook group for it, which is something that I've seen happening with some books lately, which is pretty cool. You join that, there's a thousand people in there. You start to talk, you start to swap stories. Some of them, some, somebody says, I need help with graphic design. You can offer to do that for them. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this, obviously, digitally, in person. Find businesses or pe you know, people, leaders, or, or those that you look up to or respect, whether they're your peers or um, you know, sort of older than you or less experienced than you, and make yourself a challenge to go out to lunch with one person a week for you know, two months or something like that. I mean, there you, you can build challenges for yourself if you kind of identify what do I want in a network and just start creating social capital. Always respond on time to emails. Always offer to do things for people. Go out of the way to make connections, to do things that help people, not to burden them, not to say, hey, I want to introduce you to someone. You know, maybe you could do them a favor or things like that, but to just to be really helpful and resourceful for people. And you will start to be a hub that will attract a network by itself. TK, what are your thoughts on building a network? You know, I'm a big fan of uh, the economist uh, John Kay's concept of obliquity, which is basically 
you are more likely to get the things that you want if you pursue them in an indirect way. It's kind of like we've talked about money before. The best way to get money isn't to focus on getting money. It's to focus on creating value because money is a reward for creating value. Well, in a similar way, I think when it comes to networking, people focus far too much on the connections, on the people, rather than on what they believe they would do if they had those people or those <laughs> connections. So it, 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 instead of saying, hey, if I can only get the people in my life, then I'll have somebody to go play tennis with. Just go play tennis and then you'll have people to play tennis with. And a lot of people get that mixed up. So, you know, for instance, we have a, a Praxis participant who just recently attended a lecture on on SQL because he's got some coding issues that he's trying to resolve. He heard about a lecture. He didn't have anybody to go with. He didn't know anybody that was there, but he went simply to follow up on his interests. After the lecture, he's talking to the lecturer and he's telling this person about some of the things he's working on and why he enjoyed the lecture so much. And the person said to him, you know what? I'm working on some similar things and I'd love to talk more with you. And he gives him his email and he says, email me tonight. Now, what's awesome about that is number one, Salem, this is the practice participant, he did not wait on having someone to go with before he pursued that interest. And not only that, the reason he made the connection when he was there was because he was already working on something and that person saw him as being worth his time. So a lot of young people come to me and they say, how can I get out there and meet people? How can I make friends? And they're hoping for some kind of magic bullet that I can give them, some kind of activity they can do that will allow them to have people they can do things with. But, but what's really the problem is the permission-based mindset that says, I can't build a business, I can't study for a test, I can't play tennis, I can't change my diet, I can't go to the gym, I can't go to the movies unless I have somebody to do these things with. But the best way to get people to do these things with is to do these things without them. Do what you want to do and, and, and your life will naturally intersect with the people that want to do the hey, same thing. Podcasting is a great example of that. Once you start a podcast, something really weird happens. You immediately have this network of fellow podcasters. Uh, typically people that are somewhat similar, although uh, sometimes it'll be people with much larger audiences, sometimes people who are brand new podcasters, but it kind of, you kind of move up. The more you go, the more it expands. But you immediately are networked with everyone else who has a podcast and you tend to bring each other on each other's shows to interview, to talk about stuff. You, you ex start exchanging tips. Hey, what software do you use to record? Hey, what? and all of a sudden, like just by virtue of the fact that you have a podcast, you get people emailing you out of the blue. You start having connections that you never would have even known to pursue, even if you wanted to, because you wouldn't have known how to find each other until you put up that signal that says, I'm the type of person who podcasts. Oh, I like that type of person. Let's, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's super cool. It's uh, a, absolutely, man. It's a tight hey, community. Hey, so, uh, recommendations. Hey, I, I actually, I'm sorry, man, but I got to have you riff on, on just one more thing. How all right. Dare you. Um, all right. How dare you, man? <laughs> I've had, I've had a lot of people, uh, in, in the last few minutes, email me a bunch of questions about the police stuff and the race stuff. What, what I'm going to say to you guys is I promise to do something else whether it's another Facebook live session or something like that, where, where I address some some more of those questions. But um, I, I did have someone ask me about FOMO and I gave them my thoughts. I want to hear what you have to say about the fear of missing out and, and advice you would have to people that struggle with that. Oh, man. Um, I mean, there's always a bit of FOMO that's good. 
that bit of you that wants to live fully and engage the world and, and expect the most of yourself. That part of you that asks for your best self and knows that if you're too afraid or lazy or not curious enough that you'll miss out on some things. So to the extent that FOMO manifests as I want to be my best self and push myself, um, yeah, tap into it just a little bit. But to the extent that FOMO drives you to do things that will make you unhappy, then you've got to kill that. You've got to kill it. And then obviously to the extent that after the fact, you feel you're always looking backwards and saying, oh, well, I missed that thing. I don't want to miss that again. I better make this decision. Like forget, forget about what's in the past. Just only look forward and assess every decision based on the merits given your present and projected future. Don't worry about the feelings you have associated with past decisions. But in terms of that, um, you know, FOMO making you choose things that sort of trap you in a, in unhappy obligations. I mean, TK, you and I have both faced this a lot when it comes to speaking. If someone says, Hey, I want you to come speak at my event. You know, there'll be 35 people and we'll pay you 500 bucks and you come to, you know, uh, Des Moines. And whenever I'm picking a place that sounds boring, I always pick Des Moines. Sorry, Des Moines, Iowans. Um, uh, that's, so, that's, so, that's so offensive, man. <laughs> oh, um, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm flattered. And I want them to know I'm the type of person who comes and gives talks because I want to keep having these opportunities, but 35 people, not a huge audience, not going to be a whole ton of value in that, you know, compared to some other things I might be able to do 500 bucks. Yeah, but I'm going to miss two days. You know, my opportunity costs pretty high. Like your fear of missing out, if it makes you say, oh my gosh, I can't say no to this. So I'll say yes, and then you're stressed and unhappy the whole time. That's a problem. You got to kill that. Uh, we've talked about this before that if, in terms of pricing, your happy price. I think I talked about it with Jeremy McClellan, the comedian. What price do you charge for your products or services? You charge your happy price. That is, when you imagine delivering at said price, it makes you happy and excited to do the job. When someone's like, oh, I'll pay you 500 bucks to copy edit this book, and you say, Okay. And then you imagine doing it for 500 bucks and you imagine like, oh man, all right, I got to clear some stuff on my schedule. This is going to be hard, but it's worth it. I'm getting paid. Is it worth it? But I'm stressed compared to, Hey, I'll pay you whatever, $2,000 to copy out this book. And when you think about it, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to do that book copying project. I'm going to get paid 2000 bucks. Like I'm actually happy about this. That's your price, right? And so don't let FOMO your fear of missing out. This opportunity may never come again. Make you rope yourself into things that you are not happy with, that you don't like, that you feel really stressed about. I'm not talking about avoiding things that are hard and challenging, but things that make you dead inside and unhappy. Don't let your FOMO take you to that direction. And, and one big trap that, that seduces a lot of people into doing that very thing is they gauge value in terms of what other people will be impressed by rather than what actually raises their quality of life. So I, I noticed that in my life, for instance, people are really impressed when I travel. I mean, because that, that's the big <laughs> fetish, right? You know what I mean? That, that's, that's everyone's dream. Overseas, you were like, all right, fine, I did it. 
I, I traveled <laughs> overseas. I've done it three times now. Now people will leave me alone and I'll never leave the continent again because it's totally overrated. <laughs> oh, dude, that's the best part about leaving a country is like nobody can talk any smack to me. Nobody can pressure me to leave the country. I can say I've done it. I've done it more than you. Leave me alone. I'm going to lock myself in my apartment and read my books and hide from the world because as Sartre says, hell is other people. But you know, it's just, yeah. it's funny though, because what you love, what you think is exciting, it might be boring and nerdy to everybody else, but that's cool because you're the one that's got to be you. You're the one that's got to feel the emotions that are yours, but that's all I want to Yeah, say. man. Fear of missing out on something that will make you come alive is different from fear of missing out on prestige and something that would make other people say, you did that? Wow. You know, those, those can be the same thing, but if you're pursuing it for that prestige reason, man, stay away from that. Um, recommendations. All right. I'm going to cheat today. Today, my recommendation is all of you listeners, please go over to discoverpraxis.com brand new website. Derek McGill, uh, who we mentioned earlier, did most of the work in building this thing. It's really awesome. It's really crisp. There's a brand new explainer video on there, a minute and a half. Go take a look at it. I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, but it's all refreshed. It's all uh, brand spanking new. Go to discoverpraxis.com. The blog has some great material on it. Um, there's a, we actually have the ability to live chat with people who have questions about the program now. Um, so that's where I'm going to recommend. Honestly, that's where I've been hanging out pretty much nonstop for the last week, uh, whether reading the blog, uh, reading the copy, uh, responding to people live on there. So that's the content I'm going to recommend. TK? Oh, man, I love it. Well, since we talked a lot about authoritarianism and statism and all that stuff, and I didn't get a chance to answer some people's questions about that stuff just yet, I'm going to recommend two that are related to that topic. The Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose. And The State is Out of Date by Gregory Sams. All right. Sounds good, man. I was typing those down so I don't forget. The State is Out of Date. That's the State weird. is Out of Date. I, I guarantee <laughs> all you had to do was see that cover and you were sold. Yep, I should have said The State is Out of Date, not written by Jesse Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> the State is Out of Date, but you must not hate. You must create. Yeah. <laughs> or else the problems you will exacerbate. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the, the author of that one again? The author is Gregory Sams. Last name is just S-A-M-S. Got Gregory it. Sams. The state is out of date. All right, man. Hey, about the beehive until next week, right? Much love from the beehive. Peace. Peace.